Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 62. In the uh, 60th chapter of Isaiah, which we looked at several weeks ago in our study of Isaiah, we saw where uh, God says this to Zion. And verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the people, speaking of spiritual darkness. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Here God is speaking to his true church, Zion, the true Israel within the nation of Israel, and those who are true believers. And uh, he was saying, I'm going to bless Zion. Zion was the hill on which Jerusalem sat. And it got to be a symbol for the true people of God and uh, God's church in the world. And uh, when you, you come to the New Testament, you find that uh, those uh, images are, are transferred to the New Testament church. So the Christians are told that we are come to Mount Zion, to the city of the heavenly king, to heavenly Jerusalem, city of the great king, uh, that that's where we dwell. If you're a Christian, you are part of God's Zion. We sing about that. O Zion, haste, thy mission high fulfilling, to tell to all the world that God is light, that he who made all nations is not willing. One soul should perish, lost in shades of night. Give of thy sons to spread the message glorious. Give of thy uh, children to speed and speed them on their way. Give of thy wealth and speed them on their way, so on. And then we have uh, glorious things of thee are spoken. Zion, city of our God, he whose word cannot be broken, form thee for his own abode. Bless us. And here, notice God says, I am going to glorify Zion. I'm going to bless it, and people are going to be drawn from all over the world to be a part of it. Nations will come to your light, kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar off. That's you. That's me. We've come. Gentiles. We've come to God's Zion. It was predicted 700 B.C., and we are part of it today. From all around the world. You know, when I went to Jerusalem recently uh, with the choir, it was interesting that as we would go places uh, where we were seeing uh, the tomb or whether we were seeing uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, here's a group from Korea, here's a group from India, here's a group from Europe, here's a group from America, from all over the world, people coming, a part of God's Zion. Now, it says here in verse 8, who are these that fly along like clouds, like doves to their nest? Surely the islands look to me. In the lead are the ships of Tarshish, bringing your sons from afar with their silver and gold to the honor of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. For he has endowed you with splendor. Uh, God would bless, and as a result, all these people would come. Now, in the 61st chapter, which we're going to jump over until next week, you get the person through whom this great blessing will come, the anointed one, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach 
good news to the poor. We'll look at that next week. But because of this prayer, uh, call to prayer coming up this Saturday, I want us to jump to chapter 62. Notice what's said here. You have God's promise not to rest until the exaltation of Jerusalem, till he brings about the exaltation of his church. In verse 62, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent, says God. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet till her righteousness shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a burning torch. Uh, God will not keep silent. He will not rest until he's accomplished what is here described. And uh, notice what he would do. He says, I will not keep silent for Jerusalem's sake. I will not remain quiet till her righteousness shines out like the dawn. Uh, this in the bright and the salvation like a blazing torch. Jerusalem here, or God's Zion, the church, is righteous. What characterizes the church? Righteousness. Righteousness, the perfect obedience which God's law requires. No one has it, but all of us who believe in Jesus Christ are reckoned righteous. We are credited as a sheer gift by grace with a standing legally in the sight of God of perfect obedience. Worked out by Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus Christ comes to earth. He's God the Son. He's that anointed one. And uh, he lives under the law. God and man. True man, true God. He keeps the law perfectly. Then he voluntarily becomes our substitute, as Isaiah 53 had said about him. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him, this coming one, the iniquity of us all. He was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace with God was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. He would come and be that substitute, and take our guilt upon himself. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, cried out on the cross. He was God forsaken. Forsaken of the Father because God has placed all of our guilt on him. You remember Jesus said, as the serpent was lifted in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Why have Jesus symbolized by a serpent? Because when he was on the cross, he was made sin for us. He who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And when we place our trust in him as God the Son who died for us, we're trusting him to forgive us as a sheer gift. And we surrender to him as our master. And you must do that or you're not a Christian. No one can serve two masters. We don't separate receiving Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Actually, everyone has a master. Everybody here has a master. Everybody in the world has a master. There are only two kingdoms in this world. A kingdom of darkness, a kingdom of light. Each one has a king. You start off in the wrong one, in a sense. You need a new birth. You need uh, to have a new king. And so you surrender your will to the new king, Jesus Christ. And you trust him, and then you're in his kingdom, that kingdom of light. And... You're reckoned righteous, but now your life begins to change. Because when you're in the kingdom, he's in you. He's your king. 
And he begins to change you. The Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, living within you. And beginning to work his will out and produce the fruit of the Spirit. So we're characterized by righteousness. Legally, perfect righteousness. Progressively, the righteousness which God law, God's law calls us to live out every day. We're not saved by keeping the law, but we are saved to keep the law. Remember it says in Romans 8, what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. God sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteousness which the law called for might be fulfilled in you, who walk in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So... Now that we're Christians, as we learn to appropriate the power of the Spirit, we're different. Our lives begin to change. And God causes that to happen, and people around sit up and take notice. Notice, he says here in verse 2, The nations will see your righteousness, and all the kings your glory. And you will be called by a new name for the mouth of the Lord uh, will bestow, that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. The Gentiles will see this. And uh, in verse 3, he says, You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. When you're a Christian, you're part of a beautiful crown, it says, that the Lord is making. That speaks of how precious you are to him. You are a jewel. Now, you're a diamond in the rough, believe me. And what do you do with diamonds in the roof? Well, you chip on them. And uh, that's what he's doing. He's molding you, but he's making a beautiful crown out of his people. Now, uh, the, another aspect of it, he says here in verse uh, 4, No longer will they call you deserted, Zion. No longer will they call you deserted or your, na- or your name of your land desolate. Think how small and weak Zion was uh, in, at times in the Old Testament. And when Jesus came, uh, how weak it was. Uh, but no longer will your land be desolate, but you will be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah. Uh, Hephzibah means uh, the Lord takes delight in you. Notice for the Lord will take delight in you. Beulah means married, and your land will be married. As a young man marries a maiden, so your sons will marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so your God will rejoice over you. God will produce all kind of fruit here uh, through Zion. And her sons are many from all over the world here. Now... That's God's promise. He says, I will not rest. I will not keep silent until I bring this about. But notice God's provision of watchmen for the walls of Jerusalem. In verse 6, I have posted watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. Now, who are these watchmen on the walls? Well, those are ministers that God would give to his church. You remember in Ezekiel, God says to Ezekiel, I have made you, son of man, a watchman to the Israel. I've set you on the wall here, and you're to warn them. And uh, 
So God gives to his church apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers. Watch me. But notice who else is involved. He says, uh, I have posted watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest. Now, that could be the watchman, but it could also be every Christian. All of us call on the Lord. Matthew Henry says in his commentary, he says, This includes the people, not just the ministers. All of us call on the Lord. And notice what we're to do here. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest. I've posted watchmen. They will never be silent, day nor night. We are not to give ourselves any rest. We're not to be quiet. We are to call on the name of the Lord. And we're to give Him no rest. In verse 7, and give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. Don't give me any rest, says God. Uh, we're to call on him. The, the word call there in the original, it really has the connotation of remind him. You read various commentaries and they say, we're to remind the Lord of something which he seems to have forgotten. You who remind the Lord. Lord, remember your promise to make your church glorious. Lord, we want to remind you to do that. And just keep doing that. Uh, Make it a praise in the earth. Calvin says this means to render the church glorious. Now we prayed, thy kingdom come. What were we praying when we said that? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come more and more in me, Lord. May my life be more and more under your control. May you be king of every area of my life. That's what we mean. Your kingdom come through me, to the world around me, to people around me. May I be an influence. May your church be an influence to society around us so that this crummy immoral society that we're a part of begins to change. And you don't have all the crud that we've got. Lord, your kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth. Your kingdom come to us when Jesus Christ returns and ushers in a whole new regime, a new heaven, a new earth, wherein dwells righteousness. That's what we're saying when we pray that. Now, notice the basis of our prayer, of our giving him no rest here, of our reminding him. In verse 8, the Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, his omnipotent power, never again will I give your grain as food to your, for your enemies. Never again will foreigners drink the new wine for which you have toiled. But those who harvest it will eat it and praise the Lord. God says, never again will I let Zion's enemies uh, trample over her, but I'll make her strong. And uh, that's just another way of saying what he's been saying back there in verse 1. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silence. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet till her righteousness shines out like the dawn. Her salvation like a blazing torch. 
In other words, we base our prayer, God, render your church glorious, revive your church, give your church power. Lord, bless those missionaries. Lord, bless the evangelistic effort. Bless campus ministry. Bless high school ministry. Bless children ministry. Bless the small groups. Bless all. We base it on his promise that he would render his church glorious. When Daniel was in captivity in Babylon, he read in Jeremiah the prophet, who was a contemporary of his, where uh, Jeremiah had said uh, that they would be in captivity 70 years, and then God would raise up Cyrus, and Cyrus would release them. And Daniel counted it up. He said, Lord, it's been 70 years. And he began to fast, and he began to pray, and he said, God, you promised that you would release us after 70 years. The 70 years are here. Lord, do what you said you would do. And God sends an angel to him and says, your prayer has been heard, and we're going to do it, and we'll start it here. And his prayer was part of it being accomplished. Prayer helps the promise bring forth. John Owen, the great theologian, many years ago, he says, Because a woman's time has come, therefore shall she have no midwife? Nay, therefore give her a midwife. He that uh, appointed their return from captivity appointed that it would be the fruit of prayer. So the promise is the basis. And he commands us. He doesn't just promise to do it. He commands us to give him no rest until he does it. Remember he told, uh, he told Moses, and he said, Moses, I'm, let me alone. I'm going to wipe out this nation for their idolatry here and start over with you. Let me alone. And Moses read into that an invitation. If you don't let me alone, I won't wipe them out. And Moses began to pray, oh, God, you don't want to do that. Think of what the Egyptians will say. You don't want to do that. And said, all right, because you prayed, I won't wipe them out. Well, God tells us, don't let me alone until I do this. What a challenge to us. So our earnest intercession for God to revive his church is part of its happening, part of the accomplishment of it. Uh, let's, let's bring it a little closer home. Suppose you get to heaven and there's no one in heaven from Nepal you say, God, I, I've checked here, and I thought there were supposed to be people here from every tongue and tribe and nation, and there's no one here from Nepal. God says, well, you didn't remind me. You didn't remind me to save anybody from Nepal. Bring it a little closer home. You get to heaven and say, Lord, uh, John Jones, my next-door neighbor who died before I did, I've looked around, he's not here. God says, you didn't remind me to save John Jones. Let's make it a little closer. You get to heaven and your son who died before you died is not in heaven. Say, God, my son Jim is not here. God says, you didn't remind me to save Jim. One reason that I'm a Christian today is my God, my dad reminded God to save his son. I can remember coming in drunk and seeing my father on his knees and I knew who he was praying for he was praying for his wayward son one reason 
that I'm a Christian today is my dad prayed and my mom prayed. Now there's another side of the coin. The other side of the coin is Jesus said, All the Father's given me will come to me. Here's the whole concept of election. Uh, no man can come unless the Father who sent me draw him. Whom he predestined, him he also called, him he called, him he also justified, him he justified, him he also glorified. That's the other side of the coin. And all Presbyterians said, Amen. But there's this side of the coin about praying for God to save men. And uh, he tells us, don't give me any rest. You remind me to do this. One of the most dramatic pictures of conversion I've ever read, and I've shared this with you before, George Truitt, who was a pastor of the First Baptist Church of Dallas many years ago, and he tells about, on one occasion, holding a meeting out in an area where they would have an annual meeting, and he says, he says, uh, there was a great outdoor Texas meeting. Conditions religiously were dreadfully hard and bad. Whereas such meetings were held, he says, I never knew them worse. Men with white locks about the ears were lost, and even their grandchildren followed in forbidden and erroneous paths. And he says, uh, as uh, he went to this area to have the meeting, the people told him about Big Jim. They said, Big Jim will come to the meeting one time. And he'll listen to what you have to say. And then he'll stand up and he'll curse you and he'll curse all of us. And he will leave and he will not come back. Well, the opening night, there sat Big Jim. And uh, so he preached his heart out. Said Big Jim just sat like a block of granite. Didn't move. And when the meeting was over, he got up and walked out. He didn't curse him. Didn't curse the people. And they said, well, he won't come back. He won't come back. That night, he was on his way back to where he was dwelling and the dark, and he heard two men talking and praying. And uh, says they were talking to God. And uh, they were saying, Mighty God, the people are saying that Big Jim is too much for thee. Master, we plead thy promise to thy disciples about two who may agree, and if agreeing concerning anything they ask, thou wilt hear. We agree that we want Big Jim saved for the glory of God. And to stop the mouths of gainsayers once and forever in all this section. He went quietly on his way, didn't interrupt him, but he joined them in praying. The next night he got up to preach and there sat Big Jim. He preached on the prodigal son. And then he got to the end and he said, I bring you a gospel of which I have anchored my very soul. I'm willing to die by it. I'm trying to live by it. I'm going to meet God with it. And when I stand before him in judgment, that's how I'll stand trusting in Jesus Christ. I came one day and surrendered to that Savior whom God the Father sent. Is there a man here who will surrender to him now? And Big Jim got up and started forward, and the whole congregation were on their feet. Big Jim came down, and he said, I want to ask you a question. I put you on your sacred honor. Will Jesus Christ save me if I give up to him? And uh, Truett said, on my sacred honor, I ask that he will. And then he said, you must remember, I'm the worst man out of hell. He said, my Savior died for the worst man out of hell. He said, would he save me if I were to surrender myself to him right now? 
on the authority of Jesus Christ, He will save you if you surrender your life to Him right now. So then He turned that great bronze face, pitiful in His anguish, up to heaven. And He gasped this prayer, Lord Jesus, the worst man on earth, gives up to you right now. He says, I can't describe the scene. Big Jim testified to what Christ was doing and had done in his life. Old men came up and kissed him. Children kissed him. Made an impact on that whole area for years. Who can doubt there's a connection between those two men uniting their hearts and saying, God, you promised. You promised if we would agree on touching something for your honor, you would answer. And we asked you to save Big Jim. For your honor and that response of his. We've got to do the same thing over and over. We need to pray persistently. There's a helpful new book out where the writings of a number of men and women on prayer are quoted, Pathway to the Heart of God. And here's one of the quotes here by Spurgeon. Plead with God. Plead with God. That praying is a poor shift that is not made up of pleading. Bring forth your reasons, saith the Lord. Bring forth your strong arguments. Oh, what prayers were those of John Knox when he seemed to say to God, Save Scotland for this reason, for that reason, for another reason, for one more reason. The number of his motives still multiplying with the fervor of his heart. So did he labor with God as though he pleaded for his life and would not let him go until he gained Scotland for Christ. Uh, that kind of prayer. George Mueller, he says, It's not enough to begin to pray, to pray right, nor is it enough to continue for a time. We must pray patiently, believingly, continue in prayer until we obtain an answer. Spurgeon again, he says, A prayerless church member is a hindrance. He is to the body like a rotting bone. For my own self, personally, I say that no man can do me a truer kindness in the world than to pray for me. Amen. We see God's promise here not to rest until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. His provision of watchmen on the walls there. And then man's preparation for the coming exaltation of Jerusalem. Verse 10. Pass through. Pass through the gates. The gates of this ideal city. God's Zion. Prepare the way for the people. Build up. Build up the highway. Remove the stones. Raise a banner for the nation. We who pass through, we raise a banner. We preach Christ crucified. We hold up that banner. And we call on men to repent and place their faith in him. And we remove the stones. Build up the highway. Remove the stones. We try to get anything out of our life. And out of the church, it would be a stumbling block. False teaching, hypocrisy, whatever. Let's be real. Let's don't be a stumbling block. Remove the stones. And uh, it says the preparation for the Savior. In verse 11, the Lord has made proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your Savior comes. See his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. Of course, that happened. Jesus came, just as it was predicted that he would. And then uh, the preview of how the church will be regarded. 
in verse 12. They will be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. You will be called sought after, the city no longer deserted. When God exalts his church, it will be sought after. People will come saying, tell us about Jesus. So we need to remind the Lord of his promise to do that. That's what we're going to do uh, in this coming prayer time. Uh, as a little poem that <clears throat> speaks of the power of prayer. There's a place where thou canst touch the eyes of blinded men to instant perfect sight. There's a place where thou canst say arise to dying captives bound in chains of night. There is a place where thou canst reach the store of hoarded gold and free it for the Lord. There is a place upon some distant shore where thou canst send the worker and the word. There is a place where heaven's resistant power responsive moves to thine insistent plea. There is a place, a silent, trysting place, where God himself descends and fights for thee. Where is that secret place? Dost thou ask where? O soul, it is the secret place of prayer. So let me challenge you to, number one, think about your life and how you can structure prayer time in it more. I need to do that personally. That's my biggest struggle, personally. And if you pray for me, I want you to pray that I could structure prayer more into my own personal life. That's about it. Uh, number two, join uh, some group. It's one of the prayer groups in our church. We've got the men's groups on Saturday. We've got Monday with the Master, Friday with the Father. The real part of that is prayer. You've got the women's of the Word and other women's groups. Get involved in a group that's praying. And then come this next Saturday night, 6.30. Let's come together and call on God. Remind the Lord. We'll remind Him about a lot of things. You'll be blessed. Let me challenge you to do that. Come as a family. Bring the family. The children will be a great part of this and blessed as they are. It could be that you're here today and you're big Jim. You're here, but you have never really surrendered your will to Christ. If you do that today, he will save you right now. Let us pray. As our hearts are bowed, uh, what would God have you to do to structure your life more to include prayer? What does it mean in terms of your schedule, uh, your hour of getting up, whatever? about being in a, a group, a prayer group. Plan on coming Saturday night. If you're not a Christian, if you'll come to him right now, he will save you right now. Pray in your heart like this, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. And I thank you that you're the Savior. And I come and I yield to you as my King I purpose to obey you, and I trust you to forgive and redeem me as a gift. Come into my life. Amen.